Hello, Canada and the rest of the world, and welcome to the Netflix Podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Canadian Netflix. I'm Dylan Clark-Moore, and joining me in studio today is Mr. Matt Stewart. Matt, it's good to talk to you again. It's great to be back. Well, I suppose if people haven't had a chance to uh, haven't had a chance to meet you, have you been watching anything interesting on Netflix recently? The most recent thing that I've uh, partaken in on Canadian Netflix is the uh, Eddie Griffin special, You Tell Him I Said It, or something to that effect. I can't remember what the secondary title is, but I just watched it the other day at the prompting of my mother, um, and she uh, had never seen... Eddie Griffin before she didn't recognize him, hadn't seen stuff like Undercover Brother, and didn't remember him from Deuce Bigelow. But we're watching the special together, my mother and I, and my sister joins at one point. And uh, no, it was good. He had some interesting things to say. A very physical performer. And, you know, he was speaking about how he had like nine babies. And I was like, you go, Eddie Griffin. And uh, no, it was an interesting special. Yeah, so that, that, like how? How did that? Come how, to, how did that come to be? How is it, it like? You know what? I need to watch right now. It must have been in the recommended for you because uh, it's a shared Netflix account between my parents and I, and she's seen enough comedy specials on there. She seems to gravitate towards those. Eddie Griffin's stuff was, uh, you know, very racially charged. Right. Um, and your mom has a. Proud black woman. Exactly, he's a proud independent black woman. Yeah, I was totally into that. No, it's interesting. I was making the commentary after the fact that, you know, Eddie Eddie speaks about the differences between whites and blacks. And as a Canadian, you're thinking like, well, wait a minute. Like, I don't really, you know, I don't I don't get that sense myself. But then you realize the racism in the southern United States is like a whole other ball game. There's a friend of mine who lives in London who's described it down there as like another world. Like you, like as a Canadian, our our sensitivities and sensibilities would be just blown out of the water by that sort of thing. We'd be like, "Whoa!" Like, holy, like smokes! Like, there's there's a significant issue that continues to date. And in Canada, I think we have a a, a reprieve from that. People aren't quite so wildly prejudiced, but uh, it's an interesting special. I I would recommend it. He has some interesting and in, uh things to say in his physicality. It is great. Uh, half of half of what makes the the Griffin special is great uh, is just the looks that he gives to the camera and to the audience after that that punctuates his stuff. And it prompted uh, my family to watch Deuce Bigelow, Mel Gigolo immediately afterwards, which I'd like to say proves that the rating system on IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes isn't infallible because Deuce Bigelow has a five point seven on IMDb. And a 23% on Rotten Tomatoes. And for me, that movie is soaring clearly past 80%. I love Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo. I love the movie. I will defend it to my grave. I will write it on my tombstone. Great movie. I love it. don't know if that's the infallibility of those systems or the fallibility of your... <laughs> of my own taste. <laughs> Awful. Let's not go there. Fair enough. Well, the movie that we are here to talk about this week is very appropriate for this season is uh we're gonna be talking about 1993's the nightmare before christmas i i struggled to introduce that because i was like is it disney's nightmare before christmas tim burton's nightmare before christmas but i don't want to say henry Selick's tim burton's nightmare before (laughs) christmas yeah that's a it's a weird one so uh let's introduce the movie the same way that netflix always does first the two descriptions that it offers depending on whether you're hovering or clicking on the title Mm. when you hover 
A bored Halloween pumpkin king kidnaps Santa and takes over Christmas. This isn't going to be pretty. Yeah, uh, okay. I don't appreciate that it acts like a pumpkin king is a thing that everybody knows about. I would have said a pumpkin king with malaise, but I don't know if that's too esoteric. Bored. It's not quite bored. He's uh, he's He's got a sickness. He's of, having a crisis he's of having, identity. There's malcontent. Sure. He's just, yeah. On ennui. ennui. He's experiencing ennui. <laughs> a pumpkin but I don't king know with that, ennui. But I don't know if that would alienate a potential viewer. When you click the movie, it changes to Jack Skellington, the spindly king of Halloween Town, kidnaps Santa Claus and plans to deliver ghoulish gifts to children on Christmas morning. Much better. Much better? I think so. I don't that, know if you need the physical description. Well, I just don't like spindly. that this isn't going to be pretty uh, tag. Sorry, whomever wrote that. Uh, I just feel like that sets up attitudinally the movie in a different way than it than it's going to play out. It seems more like it's going to be like a ribbing than it is like there's a, there's a lot of sincerity and earnestness in this movie which I'm quick to criticize but it's just delivered so well in this film. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The categories it belongs to are some that I didn't realize existed before this season such as Halloween favorites, funny Halloween favorites. <laughs> Halloween family favorites. <laughs> <laughs> and children and family movies. Uh, uh, yeah, a lot of derivatives of the Halloween genre there. Halloween favorites genre. And I guess it's, it's a thing. It's many cousins. I guess the... it's a thing. And uh, the movie is described as, very fairly, imaginative. Okay, absolutely. I think that's definitely something we yeah, can celebrate. Yes, very much so. Which is a great lead-in to talking about the movie, because it is definitely mm -hmm. an... It's an imaginative text. It, it's very much, you get the feeling of, you know, from the mind of Tim Burton. Mm -hmm. And there's that very Tim Burton-y feeling to it. The aesthetic and the mood and the the Elfman presence is uh, is seeping in everywhere. What I was, uh, I was fascinated to find out, and this goes back to what we were talking about before with, you know, is it Henry Selleck? Is it, is it Tim Burton? Is apparently it's a... It's a matter of debate where where both men feel that this is very much their project. Mm. Like Henry Selleck was like, I, I was there for the entire thing. I directed it from beginning to end. And Tim Burton's like, well, yeah, but it wouldn't exist without me. I created the characters. I created the poem that the story was based on. You know, I designed everything. You know, it's it's so very much my film. And it's, quote, Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas or The Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Um but yeah, it really drips with his presence, and it's kind of unfortunate. It may just be a question of his, you know, as a as an auteur, as they say, you know, his his just his genre of movies has really just overpowered Henry Selleck's even opportunity to to make a name for himself. Well, for sure, in terms of household names, I mean, I think you'd be hard pressed to find that many people that are able to identify who Selleck is. Um, but, but Tim Burton has continued to do so many things, uh, that are, you know, very accessible, picked back up by Disney and, uh, given such huge opportunity to get into everybody's lives that, um, I don't think Selleck stands a chance, unfortunately, which is a shame because, you know, there's something to be said for having the idea behind something, but the realization of, of bringing it to life. I'm reminded of the French word for director, which is réalisateur, and it's like, you realize it, right? You know, it's all nice and well to have the idea, but it's who realizes it, brings it to life, 
that that is obviously meritorious of credit. And that is what's so you know part of what's so absolutely incredible about this movie is how how alive and how vivid it feels despite it being constructed out of puppets and clay. Mm-hmm. Like these are real characters that despite their kind of awkward movements sometimes yeah. it's it's a real world that they've created with this. So the fact that he was able to, you know, bring all of this to life with their with their motions and the direction of everything. Like it's it's incredibly beautifully shot. It's an achievement. And arduous, right? Like, you know, they're I I don't know any of the stats offhand, but it's one of those things where, you know, a second of a scene can take however many it takes like 23 hours, movements days or something like that something to insane. set up or something right and so you really you know even a third of the way through the process have to be like do i really believe in this or should we just go home like get some sandwiches everybody because we did really good work up until this point but this is just laborious like it you know it, you really have to i think be into it in order to see a project like that through to completion uh yeah just meticulous energy and attention to detail and just so repetitious too and never more so than it's not often for me that a scene grabs my attention or a shot grabs my attention as being like this is this is artistry the way that you've done this but that scene where jack discovers the doors where jack the the pumpkin king has wandered off in his tired ennui away (laughs) from halloween town just trying to get away from his from his malaise in his life where he stu- he <laughs> falls asleep while walking, which is fantastic, but where he, he ends up amongst these trees where there are all these doors that we know that they lead to different worlds. But to him, it's just these, these different sure, there's pictures. Sy- there's symbols there that would be completely alien right. to him. And so his eyes particularly drawn to this one of this green tree covered in white stuff. And he's got no concept of what snow is and everything. And there's this marvelous, marvelous shot where he's reaching for the doorknob uh, on this tree. And not only is it a question of, you know, stop motion in general, it's it's done expertly in this movie. But there's this scene where he's reaching for the doorknob and the doorknob is this bright, shiny gold, like like a Christmas ornament. Like it's it's so reflective. Mm -hmm. And you see the entire shot of behind Jack reflected in this doorknob like it's insane the level of detail that would have possibly gone into creating that one shot and afterwards i guess there's a some behind the scenes book that said that that was the hardest one to do and there's no doubt in my mind that it would be that's yeah. an exquisitely shot and that goes by so quickly that that those that those viewers who are as caught up in the story as you get at that point you forget that you're watching an animated movie i think that's it's at around that point in the film where you've either completely bought in or you're just sort of along for the ride. But if you've bought in, everything fits. Everything makes sense. Nothing feels out of place or contrived. You're just fully into it at that point. And part of what gets you into it so quickly is the music of this movie. It's very much a musical. There are 10 pieces of original. There are 10 original songs that go into it. By the time Jack ends up in Christmas Town, it's within 20 minutes of the be- of the very beginning of the film and we've already had three songs we've had this is halloween the amazing start to the movie we've had jack's lament and then yeah we get into we get into the uh what was what's this yeah what's this? yeah 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 like it's the i don't even know what i want to say about it but i mean the the music at least the music in the first 
like the first three songs are so iconic now. Yeah. That as soon as, you know, I'll, I'll just be walking down the street now a week after having watched the movie and I'll have This Is Halloween pop into my head every time I walk by a jack-o'-lantern or... It's the arrangement of it. It's the it's the strong visuals that accompany it. It's a, it's a whole full-body sensory experience for me watching the movie. And it's funny, I have a special relationship with this movie because I watched it very young and I was obviously sort of scared of the of the guy under the bed and under the stairs with, you know, spiders in his hair and snakes his fingers and upsetting stuff like that. I was wasn't very into that. I was very spooked by it. But it's one that I insisted upon watching year after year and there would always be something that came up where my parents would start to watch it with me, but then they'd get busy and do something. It was, you know, Halloween night or something they were attending to kids trick or treating at the door. And I would always end up watching it with my sister. And year after year, I was like, stay, like, watch this very important movie. It's great. It, listen to the music. Listen to the, you know, watch the artistry of it. And only very recently, I want to say in the last, like, two years, did I finally basically strap my parents down a la Clockwork Orange, glued their eyelids open, and was like, watch this movie. Like, you've got to understand, this is, like, formative for me. And it informs and defines my experience with Halloween. It's it's very important. It's a great movie. <laughs> it's interesting that you just, you say that it informed your experience with Halloween because so much of this movie is about the collision between Halloween and Christmas. Where at first when it popped up and, and we'd been talking about doing it as part as a Halloween movie, I was kinda of like, it's not a Halloween movie, it's a Christmas movie. It's been so long since I'd seen it. Right. Like, no, it's just kind of like it's it's flavored with Halloween. Right. But it's, but a, it's Christmas a Christmas movie. movie. Yeah. And until watching it this time, I hadn't realized how much of it is a Halloween movie. Like it's it's almost it's a Halloween movie that happens to feature Christmas, more so than the other way around. There are so few Halloween movies that aren't about scaring the pants off of you that um and and don't get me wrong i love being scared i i do like horror movies not all of them but i've got a selection of mine which i'll keep coming back to but there's you know there's something distinct about the movie that uh it's not about scaring your pants off it's about storytelling it's about characters it just makes you know it's a cut above i'd say even though the movie is about people who scare people, it was more a celebration of the dark and the macabre and the just how much fun you can have with those those dark elements. Yeah. Like, even early on, there's one scene where Jack is walking through the forest and uh, his little dog, Zero, comes along. And uh, and Jack, he's, he's a skeleton, right? Like Jack Skellington. And Zero, Zero's kind of barking at his heels. So Jack's like, oh, okay, fine. Like, I'm not up to it, but I'll play with you. And he breaks a rib out of his own torso to throw to the dog to chase after him. And you have these, like, delicious moments where you have this darkness, but it's not, it's not intended to be scary. It's just like, no, like, death is part of life. Violence is yeah, part of life. Yeah, it's not a malicious darkness. Yeah. It's like a, a natural answer to light and you know bounciness and and rainbows and stuff that uh that just yeah as i said sort of seeks to provide a a balance a counterweight to all of the like frou-frou there's just something a little bit more oh it's that's a little bit subversive that's a little 
you know, I wasn't expecting that and it doesn't gross me out, but it causes me to reflect like, yeah, like darkness doesn't have to be bad or evil. It just is. And, you know, uh, early in the movie, there's the sort of seminal quote, which is life's no fun without a good scare. And it's the idea of fun. They're having so much fun, the characters, and that's what Jack has lost, right? He's lost the fun part of it because he's going through the motions. But everyone else is still having such a great time that, uh, that, and that's really communicated in the performances of, of the characters themselves. They're still so into it, you can't help but get into it too, I find. Yeah, and like, you even see that happen later on when Jack... When Jack goes to Christmas Town, he falls in love with everything that he's seen. There's all this novelty to everything that he's seeing. And then he tries to bring it back to Halloween Town. And he tries to bring it back in this really pure form. Because I feel like he's been he's been touched in a really genuine way that like maybe this beautiful, pure thing is the thing that I've been searching for all along. But then as soon as he tries to introduce it back to his people, you know, they they start slathering it with these dark and 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 horrifying and he images. has to and he has to end up giving them what they want he has to strike the compromise to even make it palatable to them and you know it'd be a whole different movie if jack was insistent upon delivering it in its pure form and i can't remember the name of the song itself on the soundtrack but the something's up with jack something's up with jack that song when he's up in the tower and he's you know got all the scientific equipment trying to break down christmas and understand its constituent elements even he at that point you know decides to sort of do an about face am i trying much too hard he's like i'm just gonna roll with it i'm just gonna make it halloweeny christmas but it'd be an interesting um It'd be flavored differently if he was really pushing for the purity of of what he saw instead of the compromise that he ends up reaching, you know, like the terrifying presence that they make, the, the, the you know, uh, decorations that are influenced by but still have that something gross about them quality that they make. Which is some of the most fun that the movie has when all the kids are, all the kids are, like opening up their presents and that one fat headed kid, you know, he pulls out the box and it's got a shrunken head inside. Just the look of absolute terror on his face as his parents or, or when the snake is eating the Christmas tree, like these and the really, kids just crapping his drawers, these are really incredible brief visual images where there's this, this collision because of the incompatibility of the, the morbid and the macabre of Halloween and this, this beautiful, the wholesomeness of Christmas. Yeah, and I remember, like, I remember the marketing for the film. Uh, you know, they had that scene with the parents, and what did Santa bring you this year, honey? And then ah, they freaked out. <laughs> then they pulls the head out. That was, I think, sort of the end slate of a lot of the ads for it. They're trying to like hook the parents at the end, right? Sort of thing, being like, oh, that looks like it's got a sense of humor to it, and uh, clearly one of the moments that they felt could be pulled out and really delivers that uh, sort of like this is what. This is the the humor of the film, and this is the sort of thing you can expect. So, probably the biggest problem that I had with the movie really stems from the relationship between Christmas and Halloween, because it is so very much about a man who is having a crisis of identity, who seems like there are probably perfectly legitimate reasons to not want to do the exact same thing in your life 
all day, every day. Your entire life builds up to one day every year, and then the next day it just wipes the slate clean and you're starting back over. Like, it's a real, even if it's not a crisis, that's a real concern that somebody would have with the direction of their life. So then when he finds this alternative, he finds that there's this whole other world that's available to him. It's really, it feels unfortunate and it feels sad that he isn't able to make a real compromise between the two because ultimately the like he tries right he tries and when he tries it makes christmas terrifying and it ruins christmas for everybody to the point that the military needs to be has called to shoot in, him out of the sky has to shoot him out of the sky and he's utterly rejected and ultimately like the lesson of the movie is it's fine to like be a tourist in trying other things <laughs> But you should stick with what you were built to do in the first place. Like, it's, it reminds me of the, I forget what it's called, but like the, the concept of for, I apologize for any, actually, I don't really need to apologize to any Amish listeners, but the <laughs> whole, probably don't listen to a lot of podcasts. No, I'd expect not. That might be insensitive, but I guess they have this whole idea that when you reach a certain point, you're supposed to go off and you're supposed to discover what the, what the, the rest of the world is like. And you're supposed to experience kind of like the the sinfulness and, you know, at least get a chance to understand what it is that you're recommitting to mm-hmm. when and should you choose to come back. And that's what this movie is. He goes away so that he can remember who he is and get back in touch with that. But it's got that it's a wonderful life syndrome where you could imagine this all happening again in maybe a season or two. Where, where Jack is, again, going to be like, okay, well, now I know these other things are out there. So, And I, I think that Sally is a really great example of this, or a really great kind of demonstration of this, because she she sees the turmoil inside of Jack. She feels his sadness. She's watching him from er, up in his tower, and she feels his pain. She understands what he's going through and that he's he's really upset about who he is. And then when she sees Christmas, she feels that same bliss. Like when Jack first brings it back, she's jaw agape cannot wait to see what else is next what else this beautiful christmas has to offer and we start feeling disappointed about it all getting bastardized mutilated and mutilated because we see that through her eyes we Mm. see her seeing him transform and start to destroy this beautiful pure thing so like we're never supposed to feel like christmas is wrong we're supposed to feel like things exist the way they are and they need to be kept separate, and we shouldn't try to blend cultures together. <laughs> interesting take. Um, the discussion about Sally is an interesting one because I was just thinking about the idea of of Jack's, you know, old feelings of restlessness resurfacing in a bit. Going, what if I go through the turkey door? What's going on over in Thanksgiving Land? Which which brought me to the the ponderings of. You know, which of these characters were created alongside the world, so to speak. That is to say, was Jack Skellington created to be the Pumpkin King for Halloween Town? Was it an is it an elected position? Is it one that rotates? Because you know, Sally, we we know was created by the doctor. She is not an element of that world from the get-go, from Genesis, so to speak. So it's, in, you know, it's, it's expected of her maybe that she doesn't fit in because she was, she, you know, is a secondary 
creation of the world. If we imagine that the witches and the vampires and the werewolves and the, and the ghouls and the ghosts and whomever else and, you know, Mr. Oogie Boogie and the trick-or-treaters, they all are, they all stem from the fabric of the world itself. Where does Sally fit in um, as, as a byproduct of the world? And it makes sense for her to have these feelings of alienation and not know what's going on. But it's interesting, if Jack was designed to be the everlasting ruler and pumpkin king of Halloweenland, that he would fall victim to these feelings as well. So interesting notions of like world building there of like, where did these stories come from? Well, he's a king, so I have to assume that it's an inherited position. It could be like, well, that's just it. It's, you know, have have people existed in in perpetuity in this world forever for as long as Halloween has been a thing because, you know, they mentioned that, you know, it's the day after Halloween and they're on to the next, right? It's that cyclical sort of quality that, the, you know, the tape might as well be jumping, right? Like uh, the record skipping. Um, is time actually elapsing or are they just sort of caught in an infinite loop and only some people are aware of it like like Jack? Um, so... Yeah, like what? What are the what are what are the temporal ramifications of this world? And you know, lots of things that I'm sure they, you know, liked to have knocking around at the back of their heads, but um, were deliberate not to answer, which is what makes for a great world building experience in the first place. Not answering all the questions. Yeah, and we we only have what seventy minutes that they're filling there. Absolutely. It's a really short movie yeah it rockets by if you're enjoying it you're like it's over (laughs) if you're into it it flies by i haven't seen this movie in a long time and i actually got kind of bored after Mm. the first 30 minutes of it or so i think because i'd seen everything and because like there was no there was no character that hasn't become kind of online iconic like even the even the guy with the accent (laughs) is like that that brilliant doof of a character who bunny yeah Best line of the whole movie. Yeah, I really i i lost i lost it once Jack kind of lost himself, and once he started making those compromises because I was I was no longer invested in what he was doing. It was like watching somebody go down a path that you didn't want to watch them go down. Mm. And at that point, the what's really supposed to kind of tug the narrative along is Oogie Boogie, who I think is a really unimpactful villain. I think he's introduced well because he's introduced as like the shadow on the moon and he's this kind of looming figure. But ultimately, like he doesn't we know that he's bad because he's locked away, but he doesn't seem to be in any way impactful or harmful. Like we see him eat a bug, which is kind of upsetting because it's this, you know, this this big eyed, cute bug. We see him suck it up and then he ties up Santa Claus, who is delivered to him hogtied. Like he doesn't do anything. Right, he he isn't quite as insidious a character as you'd expect. Interesting comment that you made that he's, like, locked up. Like, he is, you know, we mentioned earlier that the other aspects of, of Halloween Town aren't malicious. He is the malicious side, right? He is the one that's there to ruin your day and sort of, uh, you, you know, if you had a spring in your step, he'll he'll take it out pretty quickly interesting judgment that's passed on gambling as well (laughs) it's an interesting marriage of like oh you know there's a sinister sort of chaotic quality to him that's symbolized by like the slots the dice right it's It's an interesting yeah there's this whole it's i I called it goth vegas yeah 
Because that's that's all he is. That's his character trait is supposed to be he's so evil that they had to lock him away. But instead, what we get is he's super evil because he's like a 1950s Batman villain. Right. Where he's just got everybody tied to giant roulette wheels and he uses dice as like, like he's a gimmick. And he's ultimately completely harmless, except for the fact that people are kind of scared of him. Mm. Except Jack, who isn't scared of him at all. Jack has power, comes down into this world, and is able to defeat Oogie Boogie by literally the tug of a thread. That's all it takes to to take this villain down. Like, it's it's so non-threatening. Right. And if that's what you're... Non-threadening? Yeah. If your movie is based on somebody following a path that they shouldn't be on, and then it's based on him taking down this impotent villain then what do you really have going for you once you strip away the kind of the, the novelty of the character design and the music? I think at that point, yeah, the film does sort of fall victim to a couple of tropes. Like, if the if the crisis that we're supposed to be following throughout the film is Jack's, he's already gotten to the other side of his crisis. He's realized he is the Pumpkin King, and he's excited about next Halloween. And then he's like, oh, shit. Well, I gotta sort of clean stuff up. And he just does so seemingly with very little effort and just like effortlessly strolls in saves the day there's nothing to it there's no real struggle at that point for him he's just so efficacious and just completely taking out oogie boogie fan theory since we were talking about it earlier oogie boogie was the original king of halloween town around the circa the middle ages okay <laughs> and that's when halloween was pretty pretty weird there was burnings at the stake there were actual werewolves running around i don't know i don't know if that's the case but uh you know the dark elements of the world were still unexplained science hadn't had a chance to cast light on what happens what goes bump in the night all that stuff and so he represents the darker aspects of what halloween is supposed to embody as as society moved away from that and started turning halloween into a fun thing where girls dressed up in, you know, cat suits and, uh, you know, dance around at parties, Jack Skellington moves in to replace Oogie Boogie as the more fun aspect of Halloween Town. There you go. Fan theory. Take it or leave it. I like it. I'll take it for sure. Because, yeah, you do have this kind of more modern Halloween. You have trick-or-treaters. and Yeah. It's, it's not based in, like, you know, weird pagan rituals or, you know... Uh, you know, phases of the moon or any sort of weird, uh, sinister, uh, unknown aspects. It's like, we're going to dress up, have fun, and give you a scare one night, and then we're all going to laugh about it. Yeah, I like that. I like that idea. And that right. would explain why he's kind of locked away, because, you know, if he were to be released, then his influence could possibly kind of pervert everything else. And he is kind of, he has this negative influence on the trick-or-treaters on Absolutely. Lock, Shock, and Barrel, where, yeah. you know, these little impressionable... I guess kids, immortal children. Yeah, they're immortal children. That's a weirdness, but it's a, it's a weird thing. But locked yeah. in that mode. Yeah, but he's definitely he's whispering in their ear, and they're they're certainly willing to cause harm. Like they're they're they bring bear traps to come and kidnap Santa Claus. Yeah, that's a, they're that's not a morbid scene. They're not worried about causing bodily harm to the most beloved of all children's fantasies. Returning again to the musical aspect of it. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Dylan, but I think it's Danny Elfman doing the singing voice for Jack. Yeah, it's, uh, 
I mean, when, when all you're basing things on is IMDb trivia, you know that you're not getting a reliable source. <laughs> but there are rumors that both say that Chris Sarandon was cast as the speaking voice of Jack because he sounded like Danny Elfman singing. And there's also reports of the other side, which is Chris Sarandon couldn't sing, so they brought in Danny Elfman. because Who had sounded... just composed the music and knew it and just Right, so like, hey, just mind. make yourself sound as much like Chris Sarandon as possible. Well, I prefer it the other way around because like Danny Elfman is so crucial to to the creation of this movie it's like it, it's almost as much his movie as tim burton's or henry Selleck's. yeah there's just a mannerism to the way jack sings that is iconic and feels ve- feels very much like that character owns danny elfman and not the other way around <laughs> you know thinking of of, of jack's lament there's it's just very nuanced and fun, and uh, there's something to it in like uh, one of my one of my favorite syllables of all time that's ever been sung is when he's singing a longing, and he goes long, and he's got like really it's really nasal a longing that I've never known. It's like a long that I've never. Yeah, it's great. A long. It's great. There's nothing, I've never heard anything else like it. And they even match the face shape at that point to something you'd expect would, would make that sound. It's just, you know, if you'd, if you'd thrown it at a singer and was just like, be expressive, they do a good job, it would certainly be serviceable, it'd be entertaining. But I'll stand by what I said earlier. Jack Skellington owns Danny Elfman, and they are inextricable one from another. Yeah, I've, I've, I've read that Danny Elfman said that writing the songs for this movie was the easiest job that he'd ever done because he saw so much of Jack within himself that he was just like writing his soul onto the page. Although with the music, you also do get some pretty goofy shit. <laughs> like oh, some, for, for like, sure. Like in the same song, like right afterwards, to a guy in Kentucky, I'm Mr. Unlucky. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. come on. I love it. I love it. You see, you, you know, I'm usually not one for for shitty rhyming couplets <laughs> um and and i and i've embarked on 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 several uh you know fits of condescension against that format before but i don't know to me um it transcends it a bit and it just seems like too much fun is being had to worry about stuff like that um they take an otherwise crappy line like to to a guy in Kentucky, I'm Mr. Unlucky, and just juice it for all of the fun you can out of it and uh, just do a really great job. Sort of um, a, a really interesting one that is that obviously resonates with female viewers of it is uh, Sally's song, which is a motif that appears throughout in musical form in, in, the, in the show, but that comes at a really interesting point in the film where you haven't really heard much from her. And then you have this whole sequence where she gets to sort of air her grievances and communicate the same sort of feelings as Jack, but in a very authentic way. It doesn't feel like, oh, this is time for the girl's song, and what does she have to say for herself? You know, it's in line with everything that's happened to date, but it's a really nice reprieve from an overly you know, male-oriented thing. It's a, it's a great song, and uh, I think it's Catherine O'Hara who does both the singing voice and the speaking voice for Sally, and it uh, it sounds great because it's not perfect. It's not the best singing in the world, but it really sells. Right, but Jack is a consummate performer. Like, he's he's used to being the guy 
being burned alive on the pyre and erupting from it in this fury of glory. Very true. And and Sally is she's still putting herself together in some cases quite literally, mm-hmm. which is one of my favorite bits when she when she's like, I need to escape this tower, and you have this whole like damsel in distress thing, and she's like, well, and then she just leaps off of the tower explodes into pieces when she lands on the ground and then just casually herself back together yeah very resourceful young lady i did i felt like it was a shame with sally though that so much of you know when she got out from under the doctors you know she that's that's the only thing we know about her is she likes to escape from the doctor so that she can kind of try to find herself yeah but she finds herself in jack like that's she goes from one man to another True. I think there's also, I mean, like, she is sort of pursuing Jack throughout the film to to, to be with him. But then, interestingly, she has that sort of thing where she, you know, finds her way back to the, to the doctor as well. And I can't remember at, right at this moment whether it's a strategic thing that she's, that she needs something from him, frog's breath or whatever. But she ends up returning to him because I think it's one of those things where, oh, I have to break free, I have to break free. And then there's sort of an aimlessness once she is free, being like, well, I didn't really have a goal after this immediate Oh, it's because her arm is thing. missing. Is that it? Yeah. Right, and he's going, you're looking for this. Or, right, there you go. I have to. Yeah. Gotcha. I love well, that she's, go. I love that she's stuffed with leaves, too. Such an autumn thing. Yeah. Like, that's... Uh, it really celebrates autumnal stuff. It does. And a, a connection to nature, and it gets all very, like, gross and organic Mm -hmm. especially that gloopy guy oh yeah which must have been an interesting thing to do with the stop motion i wonder how they accomplished that because it was very wet looking (laughs) it was very goopy and i remember jack gets his like hands stuck on him right and he's trying to pull his hand off the head and the guy's getting pulled with it and uh lots of great there's a lot of great you know there's a temptation for a movie like this to achieve you know, verisimilitude and movement, like, oh, that's definitely, you know, a person moving, uh, you know, because a lot of them are humanoid based on humanoid type things, but they do a, such a good job of physicality for for Jack, his points of articulation and the way he moves around and even like, you know, tertiary characters like the clown on the unicycle. There's something about the way that they're moving around. Uh, again, you know, anytime someone delivers that attention to detail to everything you can't help but make an immersive world. Yeah, it becomes so much of what the characters are like. Like when you see the elves, <laughs> they have this kind of adorable way of moving about them. Or probably my favorite one, because they barely do anything, is the vampires. It's such a great character design where they're kind of like both shuffling and floating at yeah. the same time, where it's like Pingu wearing a cowl. <laughs> it's so strange. And they have these tiny little umbrellas that are, I guess, supposed to be protecting them from the sun. But they have these tiny, ineffectual umbrellas. It's, there's so much care that's gone into the world building. Yeah. Just the creation of everything that this movie looks like and feels like. Mm-hmm. But I still stand by the fact that I don't I don't love it as a movie. I like the experience of it. I don't want to say it makes it like a better coffee table book than a movie because so much of it is in the movement and mm-hmm. in the sound. It just, it does, for me, it started to feel like kind of a chore once I had, once once you are introduced to all those parts and when it becomes dependent on the narrative to move forward, that's when the movie starts to, Interesting. starts to kind of fall apart. Yeah, I'm always just sort of waiting for the next Jack song. And so I find that that is what continues to propel me through. 
yeah, any number of those uh, would make for, you know, such a great audition song or like a performance piece because there's just so much variety. The scene in the in the in the graveyard at the end when he's when he's crash landed or towards the end. When he's cradled in when the he's arms cradled of the in angel. the arms of the angel. Really interesting like uh you know, visual imagery being used there and uh sort of beyond what you'd expect of, you know, it's what I like about the film, maybe what I'm getting at is they didn't really seem to have a target demographic in mind. You'd 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 expect that the studio influence would be like, well, remember, this is a kid's movie, and so make it, you know, fun, accessible, and, you know, insert the right number of sort of toilet-themed humor at these specific points, keep their attention up. But they they seem to dispense with all that in service of just telling the story that they want to tell. And you you appreciate that they were given the reins for that, but I guess it did also kind of lead to some problems where originally this was supposed to be kind of the tentpole movie, of moving Disney in a new direction. And then once the final product was delivered, they said, Oh God, no, like send it to touchstone, send it to touchstone. Like yeah. we can't, we can't we do can't this. Back this. This is too weird. Yeah. It's too dark. And especially yeah. that scene. It's odd that like, despite all the, like the death and dismemberment we've seen referenced, it's really that scene in the graveyard where Jack's draped over this, this angel. That's the darkest moment. Yeah. yeah. And there's still like smoldering wreckage and, uh, you know, it's, 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 you know, he's like in, in tattered clothes and he looks like shit and uh, he's still like soot covered. But just still and, like oh, little bits of remnants of Santa Claus costume. And Zero comes and brings him his jaw, which has detached. That is great. I, I'd forgotten about that part until we were talking about it right now. But Jack is lying there. His jaw's been blown off. Zero comes and puts it back on him, and it sort of just clicks back into place. I'm sure something like that would have just scared the shit out of Disney people being like, oh, God, like, what's happening here? But it's right. It did clearly have an impact on, I think you know who I'm talking about. Like, there's there's a group of, not to stereotype, but, like, there's that that group of teenage girls who... When they grew up, they really got into Twilight a couple of years later. I was just about to say Jack Skellington is proto-Edward Cullen. But, like, he's sewn on to so... Like, there's so many Jack Skellington patches. Like, what do you think it is that's made that character in this movie so resonant to people? Like, is it that, you know, yeah, it's a kid's movie, but it's my dark kid's movie because I'm misunderstood? Like, is it that? I think it's the aimlessness and restlessness of Jack that resonates with young people and you know with respect to being sewn on <laughs> as patches on to you know coats and backpacks and stuff there's something about the fact that jack is so consumed with his own stuff for a while and then finally sort of clues in finally that sally's been chasing him around being like yo i'm into you and then at the end you know, there's just the fulfillment of them joining together, you know, and, and he calls her my friend, if you don't mind, I'd like to join you by your side. There's uh there's a very um he's like a, a the sensitive bad boy, I think. Um oh, yeah. is is the angle that young girls like. 
And I guess I you, you, you get to, I mean, it's like the movie itself. You get to dabble in darkness yeah. while still within a safe space. Like, you're putting a skull on your backpack, but it's a round, cartoonish Right, skull. with a big smile on it and Kermit the Frog uh, frills on the, on the neck. There's no other place I can think to fit this in, because um, we've already finished talking about Oogie Boogie. But I cannot get the image out of my head when he gets his string pulled and the bag falls away and he's just like a pile of bugs underneath. He looks so much like a package of licorice all sorts. Just (laughs) the bright blues and pinks of those bugs as he started to crumble apart with all this black splashed into it. He looks like he would taste like licorice. That's all I'm saying. Yum. Yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Like, is he like the Borg or, or is, you know, does he have a hive consciousness? Is he... Are those just what he's made up of, or you know, I'm thinking of when he's when he's disintegrating, falling apart, and the bugs are going bye bye, bye bye, falling into the slime below. It's like what's happening there? Is is his soul segmenting? Is he horcruxing? Like what's the deal? Well, he does have a very like he's he's detached from it because he goes, oh no, my bugs! Like it's just like his his pets. Look what coming. you've done. Yeah. But it is obviously killing him. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's the end of Oogie Boogie. Yeah. Which is pretty definitive. That's dark. It's going to happen to the trigger traders. Again, know. great job. Don't answer these questions. Yeah. Don't go the midichlorian route. And I appreciate that. I guess Tim Burton's been very protective of this franchise. And like, no, no, like, don't don't see what happens when Jack goes to Thanksgiving Town. Like, don't do it. Yeah, for you sure. You don't need to do it. Like, it's it stands as it needs to on its own without doing anything else with it. It's enough to know it exists, that the world is bigger than the slice of it that you see. Yeah, it, it really is a, is a great example of uh, plugging all the right holes and leaving the water still coursing through a couple of unplugged holes. That's a terrible analogy. It was. Got, was, I, got yeah. kind of sexy, Okay, though. so, right, I'll, I'll, you know... <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not even really interested in, in delivering another analogy, so Fine. you'll have to use it. That's Dylan. the editorial process. Yeah, that's what it's for. <laughs> well, I think that that's pretty much everything that I wanted to cover. Was there any any topics, any discussions that you? I'd be interested to know people's thoughts on my fan theory I'd be, about Oogie I'd be Boogie being the original king of Halloween Town. I think it's brilliant. Well, it it just came to me as I was sitting here, just like a rumination based on the conversation we were having about. Why are these characters having these feelings? And you know, do uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I'd be thrilled to I'd be thrilled to hear what people have to say about that. If uh, if you buy into that as a fan theory, or if you have any answers to any of these these questions that we've asked about the the bigger world outside of Halloween Town, or the history of it, or or anything like that. Well, the way that we like to wrap up these conversations is by since we did watch this on Netflix, we want to give this a rating of one, two, three, four, or five stars as well as if you feel so inclined, assigning the movie an MVP, kind of someone who stands out as being being better than the rest. Doing my best to divorce myself from the very close affinity I have with the movie. Um, usually I'd be tempted for something that I feel this strongly about to give it a perfect score, but in view of the interesting uh, conversations we've had tonight and... Uh, the enlightenment that I've received uh, discussing the film with you, uh, Dylan. I think I'm going to give it a. F- I think I'm going to give it a four. I don't want to be like a childhood killer here. I just no, like, no, I had no. a different experience of no, it. No, no, no. And I mean, but that, but that's my objective rating of it. My subjective is like a six. Like I love the movie. <laughs> like I love the movie. 
an MVP for me, um, you know, without needing to really stretch for it, it is Danny Elfman as the singing voice of Jack. That would have been pretty self-evident based on the discussions that we've had already. If I had to pick a second string person, um, it's whomever did the uh, character design slash voice work uh, for the Doctor. Great character. Great great interpretation of the mad scientist. Um, very neurotic. Has a sort of Seinfeld feel to me. Sally, what are you doing? He's great. He's my second string. I love that when he's poking around in his brain, he's literally poking around yeah. in his brain. <laughs> just pries yeah. his head open and starts fiddling around trying to... He's just got a great aesthetic synapses. when he goes gone again and his lip quivers. It's and 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 and, and they allow you to really look at his lip quivering there for a quick second. I love that part. And he smashes the the lantern on the ground. Gone again. I love that part. Great. Oh my god, I adored that. Uh, for myself. Um... I, I like that this movie exists more than I like watching it. Uh, I got, like I said, about halfway through and I was just kind of, it wasn't that I was clocked out. I just felt like I had seen what there was to see. It was a rehashing of the same thing without giving me too much of a reason to keep going. So it's, it's for me a three star movie. It's not like, there's so many incredible elements, like the world building, the the character design and everything. Um, my MVP is going to Henry Selleck. I guess I'm being controversial here, but if the idea is that Tim Burton created the world and then kind of left it in somebody else's hands and was on set for a few days, I think that Henry Selleck really did an incredible job of bringing that world to life and and making all of that happen. And ultimately, I have to assume, making those decisions about how everybody moved and making everything happen. So it's a really, really incredible accomplishment. So absolutely giving that to him. Here, here. Here, here. Well... Matt, really want to take the time to thank you for for coming on and doing this all over again. It's it's really fun to listen to your your impressions and your uh, <laughs> well, you're, you're pretty bang on, uh, Danny Elfman. And always a pleasure. Certainly, around this time of year, find myself singing the songs. Uh, I remember the first MP3 player that I had, which was just a little thing that was sort of the size and shape of a pack of rockets. That's Canadian Rocket Smarties to uh, U.S. listeners. So that was the size of my MP3 player, and I had it in my pocket, and it would be like summer school. I was doing grade 11 English in the summer of grade 10, getting it out of the way or whatever, and uh, during like silent study periods or whatever the hell it is that we were doing, having like listening to Jack's Lament like middle of the summer and being like, you know, our longing that. Yeah, great. Matt, other than doing this, is there anywhere that uh, that people can find you? Is there anything going on that, that the world needs to know about? I'm uh, still working at uh, Canada's largest independent video game developer situated here in London, Ontario, Big Blue Bubble. Having recently launched, they're insanely successful. Sorry, take that away. <laughs> sure. I don't know how to describe yeah. it. We, uh, we just launched in late September the... Uh, sequel slash prequel to our hit game, My Singing Monsters. It's My Singing Monsters Dawn of Fire, which is a very epic name for, uh, you know, a cute farming music-based game. But 
Uh, it's all new music. It's reinterpretations of classic characters, and the studio's been working really hard on it. And uh, in the first week, it uh, achieved the number one spot on iPad in North America for, for uh, top free. And I was in like the top five for the U.S. as well. So uh, we're very pleased with its performance so far on a, on a personal level. Um, I think I'm getting back into some uh, theatrical or otherwise performative enterprises Good. in the next uh, little while. Uh, a friend of mine is doing a, a shoot in Toronto that I'll be taking place, uh, or that I'll be participating in at the beginning of November, and then uh, early 2016, I'm going to be involved in another project. So I'm really looking forward to sort of getting my uh, feet wet with that again and, and treading the boards once more. Oh, that's great. We'll have to check that out and let us know when that's going on. We'll be sure to share that on uh, on the social media. Let Ooh. people know where they can see you instead of just hearing you and yeah, getting getting a sense of what a full length performance from you sounds like instead of a thirty second snippet. Mm, full length. That's the way I like to do it. That, that's how you're gonna end this. Uh, no, you can edit that out. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Matt. It was such a pleasure having you on. My pleasure. That's gonna be everything for this week from the Netflix podcast. Be sure to check out the rest of the Netflix content over at netflixblog.wordpress.com, where you can find articles, reviews, as well as a weekly look at what's new on Canadian Netflix. Check us out on our social media platforms, starting with Facebook at facebook.com slash netflixpodcast. Over at Tumblr, you can find us at netflixpodcast.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at netflixpod, where you can also find me at Dylan Clark Moore. If you like what you've heard this week, why not head over to iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use and subscribe so that each week's episode comes straight to you. While you're there, why not drop a rating and a review to let us know what you think. The Netflix podcast is produced and edited by me, Dylan Clark Moore, and special thanks are owed for this week's episode to Matt Stewart for the excellent conversation and to Caroline Deason for graciously providing the space to record. Thank you so much for checking out this week's episode of the Netflix podcast, and be sure to join me here next week for a whole new conversation about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog. Because even if you think you've seen it all, baby, you ain't streamed nothing yet. <laughs> <laughs>